how good it is to consider your faithfulness, Father. You are good to us, and you always have been good to us, and we give you thanks. Thank you, God, that you sent your Son, and thank you, God, that you have made him known to us through your word. And so now, as we sit ourselves before it, God, may our hearts and minds be attentive, that we might know what it is to be content, whether we have a little or have a lot. May Christ be our strength. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Children, you're dismissed. And as they go, let me uh, share with you a story from a guy by the name, a uh, story in the life of a guy by the name of John Wesley. John Wesley was an Englishman uh, who lived in the 18th century, and he was one of the pillars of the Great Enlightenment, or the Great, uh, I shouldn't sorry, the Great Enlightenment, the Great Revivals of the 18th century. Uh, he was one of the three pillars that began that, but before he became the great evangelist, John Wesley, he uh, was heading down to Georgia, the colony of Georgia at the time, and he was on a boat from England to Georgia, and on the way there, he was in this boat alongside some other group, uh, another group of people by the name of the Moravians. Now, the Moravians, if you're familiar with them, these are amazing, crazy Christians that just sp- spent their lives for the sake of the gospel, went to really hard places and did hard things for the sake of Christ. Well, he's in this boat on the way there, and uh, he notices that these Moravians begin to have a bit of a service. And they just open up a psalm, and they begin to sing it together. And as they're singing, the boat begins to rock and wail. And before you know it, waves begin to crash over the side of the boat and even in down inside to the deck of the boat where they're sitting, where they're singing. And everybody at this point begins to scream and wail because they're so scared. John Wesley included. And as everybody is screaming, John Wesley himself, he looks over and he sees the Moravians continuing to sing as though nothing were happening. And they never stopped, and they continued on. Eventually, the seas began to calm, the storm calmed, and everything came back to normal. And John Wesley goes and spoke to one of the men of those Moravians, and he asked them the question, were you not afraid? And the Moravian said back to him, I thank God, no. And he said, Wesley said back to him, well, what about your women and your children? Were they not afraid? And he said, they are not afraid to die. Well, that experience set John Wesley off uh, on a trend that eventually had him to believe that he was not a follower of Christ, even though he was on his way to to the colony of Georgia to preach the gospel. He eventually makes his way back to England and he gives his life to Christ and he's used of God to see all kinds of things happen. But these Moravians expressed a great uh, illustration of what contentment is, in particular when there was need. And so contentment we might define as the unconditional satisfaction. Unconditional satisfaction or reservation no matter what our situation. That's what contentment is in general, but we're going to think a bit more deeply about it this morning, in particular what Christian contentment is. And so I wonder if you enjoy contentment. Is that something that you would say that you do, that you enjoy contentment? Would your friends, neighbors, family members, would they say that you are a person of contentment? That you are at peace, at rest, no matter what comes your way? Well, we are, after all, the most wealthy, the most educated, the most healthy civilization that has ever existed in the history of the world. And yet what I think is interesting about that is I think most of us would say that we're not content. We're not content. Most of us are quick to gripe or complain. 
to express our dissatisfaction or discontentment about some present circumstance in our lives, even though we have more options than ever before. And I wonder why this is. Why is it we have so much discontentment? Why is it we lack so much contentment, even as Christians? Well, I think it's because we have not learned Paul's secret. The secret of contentment. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. The secret of contentment. Today, we're going to consider that that secret that leads us to a kind of peace that no matter what comes our way, we can sit contented. So Paul has been writing here in this to this church in the book of Philippi. That's where we are in the book of Philippians. Paul has written to this church that he loves dearly because he's beginning to notice there's a few signs of some early disunity in the life of the church. He's instructed them about the greater call to magnify the glory of Christ, to be more attentive to that, to look more to that. And he's instructed them as to how they can grow up into that. He's reminded them of how they can grow up in the magnification of the glory of Christ. He reminded them to not live in the God of the belly. That is, living out of instincts and urgences, urges and preferences. Instead, he encouraged them to live in the light of the return of Christ and the restoration that is coming with him. He tells them to pray and find peace with Christ. He tells them to dwell on the good things of God and practice those things, which then leads us to another consideration as to what it means to stand firm in the Lord and know contentment. Chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. First thing we see here we should consider is the definition of contentment, the definition of contentment. So Paul says there in verse 11 that he has learned in whatever situation he is in to be content. He says that after having just expressed how he rejoiced in the Lord because they had revived their concern for him. And so when we read that, we might read that as a kind of soft rebuke from Paul. We could read it as if to say, it's nice to see you guys finally woke up and started helping a brother out, you know. We could read it that way, but that's not the way that Paul intends it. He mentions that they didn't have an opportunity before, but now they do have an opportunity. They did have an opportunity, and they met that opportunity. You can read as to what they did there in verse 18. If you flip over and look at chapter 4, verse 18, you can see how they helped Paul. We'll consider that next week. Uh, They not only sent Epaphroditus to encourage him, but they also brought some gifts. By the way, these are the kinds of things we do in our short-term mission trips what uh, some are going to be doing here in just a few weeks when we go to Central Asia. And this caused Paul to have great joy in the Lord, this sending of these gifts. So it's helpful, I think, also to be reminded that often God uses generous churches in order to be the hands and feet of his mercy. It's good to be reminded of that. That generous Christians are the vessels of God using to fill up needy Christians. But Paul says that they that while they had revived their concern for him and while he was thankful for their gift, he didn't really need it. That's interesting. Look there at verse 11. You see it there. He didn't really need it. Now, why would he say this? 
sort of strange, isn't it? Sort of a strange thing to say. He essentially saying, I rejoice in the Lord. You revived your concern for me. But listen, I didn't really need your help. I'm fine. I've learned to be fine. Why would Paul say this? Well, it's because he's trying to highlight for them and for us that all we need for life is found in Christ. That's the secret they're going to see a little later. But for now, we need to see how Paul is using this situation to highlight the need for contentment. And that will help us understand what contentment is. So apparently, Grace Church Philippi had not been so content. At least, they had begun to show signs of that. After having just told them to practice the same things they saw in him, that was verse 9, Paul shows them how he thinks and how he lives when he was in need or in plenty. In other words, he's using himself as an example to talk about what he just told them to do. That is, he shows them how not to crumble, but how to be content. And he does this by using the occasion of their gift to him. So he wanted them to see that contentment is a goal that they need to strive for. It's something that he has. It's something that they need. And so what is it? What is contentment? Well, I've broadly defined it already as unconditional satisfaction. But what is the kind of definition that we would find by Paul? What does Paul mean here? What is Christian contentment? Well, in his uh, definitive treatment on the subject, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs defines it as following. By the way, I highly recommend you read that book. There are a few uh, books I would put in my top ten. That would be one of them. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It is an amazing book. Read it. But here's how Jeremiah Burroughs uh, defines contentment. He says, As that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, some of you started to write that down. You're like, I didn't get all that right. I know it was long. Let me boil that down for us. Christian contentment is the glad submission to the good providence of God. Christian contentment is the glad submission to the good providence of God. Of God. So that word contentment there in verse 11 means sufficient. So no matter where he finds himself, whether Paul has a little or he has a lot, he has learned to be sufficient. So whether he has a job or he doesn't have a job, whether he has the favor of man or he doesn't have the favor of man, whether he has a full kitchen or whether he has just an apple, he's sufficient. He's at peace. He's at rest. He's trusting God's good providence. His circumstances do not dictate his peace or his rest. His strength is settled. It's rock solid. It doesn't blow with the winds of life situations. He would go on to write actually on another letter to his uh, disciple Timothy in the book of 1 Timothy. He writes this in 1 Timothy 6, 6 6-8. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these, we will be content. So what Paul is saying is, other than bread and water and a t-shirt and some shorts, if he has Jesus, he's fine. That's essentially all he's saying. So he reasons, we came into the world with nothing, we're going to leave with nothing, so anything else we get is a good gift from God. And this, I think, also echoes, he's probably echoing back Job's word, when Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Paul and Job both submit to the goodness of God and what they have. 
And therein they have contentment. They have peace. They have sufficiency. They are steady amidst life circumstances. The frame of their spirit is like a bottle underneath the fountain of God's grace. It's still and the water fills it up. But although Paul is sufficient or settled or submissive to God's good providence, it doesn't mean that his contentment is void of struggle. It doesn't mean that he's not able to sort of have some kind of struggle and still be content. It just means that he gladly submits to God in the midst of life's trials. And he's not going to have life throw him upon the rocks in order to be destroyed. So he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 to 9, here's the picture of the same guy that says he has contentment. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. See, friends, having contentment doesn't mean that you don't sometimes wonder. It just means that you don't whine. Having contentment doesn't mean that you might not be knocked down and have struggle in that. But the truth is, you get back up. Trust God through it all. And you're able to do this because, as Paul says there, you believe God wants to show that the power belongs to God, not to us. This is the secret that we're going to explore in just a minute. But for now, it's important that we understand what contentment is. It's the glad submission to the good providence of God. And so the contented Christian, then, is 100% of convinced of three things. He is 100% convinced of three things. That God's good, that God's sovereign, and that God is providentially active in their life. They're content, the contented Christian is convinced of that. That he's good, that he's sovereign, and that God is providentially acting in their life. Therefore, they gladly submit to him and they're at peace. Those that aren't contented, then, they doubt one or all of those three things. And therefore, they're not at peace. They're not contented. An old saint from church history, Latimer, once said, quote, When sometimes I sit alone and have a settled assurance of the state of my soul and know that God is my God, I can laugh at all my troubles and nothing can daunt me. It's a great line, isn't it? An author said of that, quote, Godliness puts a man in heaven before its time. Before his time. So Paul is taking the occasion of the Philippians' good gift to remind them that while he is thankful, he didn't need it because he's content. He's learned to be content whether things are going well or not. In any and every circumstance, he's sufficient. He's settled. He gladly submits to God's good providence in his life. And he doesn't, he's not clanky about it. Now we need to ask the question, how does that happen? Right? How does a Christian come to be content in all circumstances as Paul How do we become sufficient, gladly submitting to God's providential activity no matter the situation? Well, the answer is, friends, it's learned. It's learned. That leads us to the second point, the school of contentment. We've considered the definition of contentment, now the school of contentment. Did you notice the presence of that word learned there in verse 11 and in verse 12? You see it there? Word learned. So Paul says he learned in whatever situation he's in to be content. He learned how to gladly submit to God's good providence in his life. This wasn't something, by the way, that came easy to him. And that's why I call it the school of contentment. So having a soul whose posture gladly submits to God's providential activity, whether that's good or bad, perceived as good as bad, that's something that is learned. 
And so if you're listening to this, all this talk about contentment, and you're going, I'm so not content. Uh, Or you're saying, like, I might be a little content, but I'm so far away from that. Well, listen, you're in good company. Paul was that way. He learned it, and we all must learn it. You know, I was thinking about this this week as I was preparing the sermon and going through this passage, meditating on it. Um, I was struck by all the ways that I am not content. I was struck by the ways that I am so often discontent. Uh, this was brought to bear upon me There's uh, in a phone call that I had about a month ago. Uh, I have a monthly call uh, with uh, the network that we're part of, the Treasuring Christ Together Network, with some other pastors from around the country. And there's one brother that knows me well on that call. And he was asking, how's your life, Nathan? How are things going? How's the church? How's ministry? How's your family? These kinds of things. And I was sharing with him, just responding to his question. And uh, the things that I was saying were mostly just sort of things that were happening. But he picked up sort of on the, I think, the, uh, the kind of tone of my words. And he stopped me and said, uh, Nathan, I've heard you mention these things before. Maybe now's a good time to boast in weakness. It's not what I wanted to hear, you know. I wanted them to kind of, yeah, buddy, so sorry for you. You know, that's what I wanted, but that's not what I got. And you know what? My brother was right. He was exactly right. And that moment for me, those words of correction, exhortation, admonishment, that set me off for the next, for the last month and a half to have much more contentedness because I stopped trusting in my circumstances and I started boasting in my weakness finding rest in Christ. I think all of us in some ways have to learn this, don't we? I needed my brother to highlight my discontentment so that I would learn contentment. I needed that. And so I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I don't preach these things to you because I've solved them. I'm not there yet. I'm still a work in progress. And my guess is most all of you are as well. Learning contentment in this school. See, oftentimes we have to learn this contentment by the Lord by Him graciously highlighting our discontentment. So if we don't know what so- if something is broke, then we don't know how to fix it. And even more than that, we, if we don't know how badly something is broke, we don't know the need to fix it. Most of us lack contentment, but I wonder how many of us understand the depth of our discontentment. See, it's the kindness of the Lord to lead us to this passage, isn't it? You ever thought about church that way? That God graciously is confronting us as we come here week to week, challenging us in a few things? So God has graciously reminded us in order that we would learn to gladly submit to whatever God gives us. And so as we see in this passage, sometimes God gives us even abundance in order to learn contentment. And we like that lesson, don't we? Yeah, give me that. I'll take the abundance lesson to learn contentment. Give me a lot, God, so I can learn to be content. We love those lessons. But uh, I think that there, we should note that there's some danger in learning contentment out of abundance. Paul's learned contentment out of abundance. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But there is a bit of danger, right? Because whatever abundance comes, we may be fooled into thinking that we are learning to be sufficient because we have a lot, when in fact we're actually trusting those things. Things are actually just coming the way that we want them to, and we're fooled into thinking that we have contentment when in fact we just have what we want. There's a little bit of danger in learning contentment from abundance. But nevertheless, we should learn to be content in abundance. So Paul learned this 
by submitting to God's will for his life in this abundance. So, but the reality is, Paul, he does have this contentment. And so what can we learn? How can we learn to be content in abundance? Well, going back to Paul's counsel to Timothy, most of us have never had to worry about food. And most of us have never had to worry about clothing, right? Most of us in this room, maybe all of us in this room, have never had to be concerned about whether or not where your next meal is going to come, if you had clothes in the closet, those kinds of things. Most of us. We've always had that. Most of us always will. So how do we learn to gladly submit to God's good providence when we are in abundance or when we abound? Well, look back up there in verse 11 and you'll see your answer. You have to recognize you don't need it. You don't need that abundance. When I was growing up in my home, the night household, my dad would not let us use the word fair. We could never use it, and if we did, we got directly confronted. That's not fair, we would say. And my dad would quickly say, life's not fair. So we just learned to stop saying it. In our house, it's the word need. It's the new house, the word need. I need a new pair of jeans. No, you don't. You want a new pair of jeans, right? I need a milkshake. No, you don't. Nobody needs a milkshake, right? <laughs> you want a milkshake. So, <laughs> and a culture, I think that kind of we have so much around us, we kind of confuse our wants and our needs, see? Paul was making clear to the discontented or increasingly discontented Philippian church that while he was thankful for their gift, he didn't need it. He had found the secret of sufficiency, and it wasn't in having all of his appetites satisfied. He found that the only thing he needed was to be strengthened by Christ. Don't you remember what he said just a moment ago in chapter 3, verses 3 to 11? You remember what he said there? You can flip back over there and look at it. Remember how Paul said that he puts no confidence in the flesh, even though he has every reason to. And remember, he then lists his resume, and his resume would have been superior to all of our resumes. And back then especially, he would have had the resume of some great world leader. And what did Paul, what was his conclusion about that resume? I'll lose it all if I can just gain Christ. He says, I count it as rubbish. That word there is dung. I don't care about that stuff. I just want Christ. Just give me him and I'll be all right. Flush all that stuff down. And so we're not used to hearing people talk like that, are we? Jesus is good for us, but we normally kind of put Jesus off in the kind of spiritual quadrant of our lives. So you, maybe you're listening to the sermon and you're going, yeah, like Jesus is great, Nathan, but Jesus don't pay the bills, bro. Like you might think that. Paul says, though, until you understand that all of your needs, all of your desires are fulfilled in Christ, then it won't matter whatever else you get. Take the world, Paul is saying, but just give me Jesus and I'll be content. So the only way we are going to learn content in our abundances, whether material or circumstantial, is to understand that none of those things, whatever it is, none of those things will make us satisfied because every single one of them can be taken away in a moment, but not Jesus. There's no U-Hauls behind funeral processions. You can't take it with you. But Christ is always yours. If you are in Christ, he is always yours. The way that we learn contentment in our life is by understanding that Christ, friends, is our life. Not our jobs, not our relationships, not material possessions, not our living situations. Christ, he is our life. He is the only thing that will ultimately satisfy us. 
That's how Paul, that's what Paul learned in contentment. And that's how we will learn contentment in our abundance. Understand that we can lose it all and still be content because we have the love of Christ. But what about those learning contentment by being brought low? By hunger, by need. Those are the words Paul uses. Now we don't like to admit it, but I think we'd all agree that pain Loss and need are really good instructors. We don't like to admit that, but it's true. They put heat on us. Difficulty puts heat on us, and they reveal what we're really like, what we really treasure. See, we could fake contentment by external quietness when things are good or fine, but we can't fake contentment when cancer comes, when job loss comes. When hunger comes, when the word no comes, we can't fake it then. Either those desperate circumstances will expose a heart that gladly submits to God's good providence, or it will reveal that we're not quite along as we thought we are. We're not quite as further along as we thought we were. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That's going to be to the left of Philippians. Flip over there, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, just a few little pages. You're going to see there how difficulty teaches us contentment. This is Paul writing again to the Corinthian church, a different different church. 2 Corinthians 1, take a look at verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Why did this happen? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, friends, again, we live in a place and a time. We live in a place and a time where we have not only everything that we need, but we have most everything that we want. I'm thinking about this today. Like, I lost some bungee cords for my bike. I'm going to go buy some bungee cords, and they'll be sitting on my doorstep in like, you know, 24, 48 hours. I mean, we have most everything we uh, need, but everything we also want. It's easier, I think, as a result of this, to rely more on ourselves and less on God. See, we rely on ourselves to raise our level of production in order to bring satisfaction. We rely on ourselves more than we rely on God to bring about satisfaction. And so here's a good question to ask yourself to see if you're relying more on God, the one who raises the dead, to bring about contentment, satisfaction, or are you relying more on yourself? Here's a good question to ask yourself, to know where you're at on that. How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? See, prayer, friends, is one of the most important ways to evaluate whether we rely on God and therefore will peacefully trust his providential activity in our lives. See, if we don't pray, we likely don't trust much. And we're trusting more of ourselves. So if I told you that I trusted my wife, and I loved her, and I thought her to be wise and full of strength, and yet I rarely talked to her, and rarely spent time to listen to her, you would understand that there would be some level of discontentment between the two of us, right? So it is with our relationship with God. 
See, Paul understands that calamity was introduced in order to cause them. That's what he said there in 2 Corinthians 1. Paul understands that calamity was introduced in order to cause them to rely on God who raises the dead, not on themselves. So oftentimes the Lord lovingly, yes, lovingly introduces difficulty into our life so that we would do the same. So that we might come to trust him, rely upon him, stop relying so much on ourselves. See, friends, we lack contentment because we rely so much on ourselves. We learn contentment by experiencing difficulty and finding our rest in God. And listen what happens. As this happens, as we are introduced to difficulty and calamity, and we learn that contentment and we keep our eyes on Christ through that, and we come out of that, here's what happens. What happens is, is the idea of things like Romans 8.28, for God uh, works all things together for the good, those things become go from being abstract ideas to being heartfelt realities. That's what happens. We can graduate from the school of contentment and know with Paul what it is to have sufficiency, whether we have a little or a lot. That's what difficulty teaches us. So this, friends, is why the Bible so frequently talks about trials and tribulations as good things. We don't think that way, do we? Every time something bad happens, we think God's against us, like Job's friends, right? Oh, you must have done something wrong. But the Bible frequently talks about the goodness of difficulty because they're training us to find contentment in Christ. So trials and tribulations are the kind of calculus and you know, chemistry or statistics in the school of contentment. We don't like them, but they actually help us grow a lot. We learn a lot. And that, of course, is going to lead us back into the secret. But before I get there, let me just say a few things to us, Restoration Church. If I'm right and the contented Christian is convinced of those three things, the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, and the providence of God, then we're going to have to really slow down, pay attention to those three things if we are ever going to be content and either we have abundance or need. We're going to have to slow down and be attentive to those things, be oriented by those things, be filled up in those things. So you ask, how is it I do that, that I might be content? How is it I go to the school of contentment and learn? We'll go back and look at Paul's words leading up to this, and you'll have your answer. I've mentioned this already. Look back at chapter 3, verse 19. This is all the stuff kind of going right into his, uh, uh, his talk there in chapter 4, verse 10. You've got to go, first off, you have to reject the God of the belly. Chapter 3, verse 19. You have to reject living out of your instincts, your urges, your appetites, your passions, your preferences. You have to reject having your mind set on earthly things. And then, Secondly, secondly, so we reject the God of the belly. Secondly, if you're going to learn contentment, secondly, you have to set your mind on the things to come. Chapter 3, verse 20. It's the next thing he says. That your citizenship, if you are in Christ, your citizenship is in heaven. Remind yourselves that you're a citizen of heaven. You heard Nick pray that. See, Christ will return. He's going to resurrect the broken world. He's going to make it whole again. That day's coming. And that's the day that we're oriented by. Chapter 3, verse 13 to 14 says we've got to press on. We've got to strive for that. Strive to live inside of that. So we have to think more about heaven and hope more in heaven. And thirdly, we've got to pray with supplication and thanksgiving, making your request known to God. That's chapter 4, verse 6. That's what he says. That's the next thing you have to do in the school of contentment. You've got to pray with thanksgiving, making your request known to God. If you don't have a habit of praying, uh, and prayer for you is only in the moments of desperation, then listen, start small. Just start small. Don't feel the need that you have to wake up tomorrow and spend 30 minutes in prayer. Just Maybe you should. Maybe that would be a good idea for some of you. But start small. 
Just open up a psalm and pray it back. Use the scriptures to pray it back. I've been praying for this church, Philippians 1, uh, 9 to 11. Our community group has been playing that together for our church. That's a prayer from Paul. Use it and pray it back to God. That's how you're going to grow in contentment is through prayer. Rejecting God of the belly, accepting the heaven's orientation. Thirdly, praying. Fourthly, think well, deeply about things that are right, good, and true. That's chapter 4, verse 8. That's what we saw last week. Think deeply about all that is right and good and true. Be more oriented by the good things of God than all the bad things that may be around you. Learn to see the goodness of God in all that is around you. And fifth, chapter 4, verse 9, the very next verse, practice those things. Practice those. That's what we saw last week. Don't just believe the truth. Think deeply about the truth. Practice the truth. I went to seminary with a whole lot of people that love to think deeply about the truth but not live it out. Really frustrating folks. You don't like being around folks like that. Think deeply and then practice it. Be, don't just think about that which is lovely. Be lovely towards others. And slowly, friend, you're going to build contentment as you go in the school of grace, in the school of contentment. These things, as you live them out, your heart is going to be more oriented by the things of God. Just as Paul is, you're going to learn to rely more on him, less on yourself. And you'll have contentment. Which brings us finally to the secret. We've seen the secret of contentment. So we've seen from this passage that contentment is gladly submitting all of ourselves to the good providence of God. We've seen that gaining this contentment comes by learning it in the school of contentment. But lastly, and oh so importantly, we've already been hinting at it, but the secret to having contentment is by trusting Christ to strengthen us through the ups and downs of life. Verse 13, take a look at it there has to be one of the most misquoted verses in the history of the world. Right? I mean, it is top five, all times, misquoted, misunderstood verses in all the Bible. I remember when I was younger, watching Evander Holyfield, the boxer, have it on the back of his robe, going in to beat up Mike Tyson. I can do all things. I, he's going to equip me to beat this guy up. I can remember seeing, you know, athletes, basketball players, and, uh, you know, football players, not baseball players, they're smarter than that. Not true. Yeah, we're, I wish that was true. But yeah, they write it on their shoes, right? I'm going to be able to do these kind of... I even remember the, the vaunted Tim Tebow. You know, he write it on this eye black, Philippians 4.13. Right? But the point, friends, the point of doing all things through Christ or through Him who strengthened us, that should be clear to us by now, shouldn't it? You guys should know kind of right where the rest of the sermon's going. Now that we've understood the context of the passage, the point is not to make us jump higher, run faster, throw farther in order to win a game. The point of this passage is to trust Christ so deeply that we can find joy and peace, whether we lose or we win. We're able to be content through it all. See, the secret of contentment that Paul found is just what we read about in 2 Corinthians 1. It's relying on Christ for strength to endure, not relying on our own strength. See, if you were to go down to your local bookstore and you were to go over to the local self-help section, you would pick up any of those books there. They're going to tell you some form or variation of the same thing. To trust your own abilities in order to bring about your full potential. But friends, the Christian faith teaches the exact opposite of that. The total opposite. The Christian faith tells us what we already know, but we never have the guts to tell anybody. That we can't do it. We can't do it. We can't be strong for ourselves, much less other people. 
We know that. We have difficulty saying that to people. We know that we're weak. We kind of position ourselves as though we're strong, but we know we're weak. We can't endure the difficulties of life in our own strength. We know that. In our heart of hearts, we know that. We can't even make it through the good times of life and find contentment. We've got to keep finding another stuff, another job, another thing, another widget to make us happy. We know that in ourselves, we can't find contentment. There's not enough strength in ourselves. So we need strength. We know this as Christians. We need strength from someone outside of ourselves to give us the strength from them so that we might then come to know the peace that passes all understanding, whether we have a little or a lot. That's what we need. We know that we need strength from outside of ourselves. So the secret to being content is not by trusting our own sufficiency. It's trusting Christ's sufficiency for all things. That's the secret. So when you study Paul's life, just go back. Study Paul's life. You're going to be struck by a couple things in his life. First off, you're going to note the amount of trouble he ran into all the time. And secondly, you're going to be struck by how those troubles never seemed to stop him. They never did. He never lost heart. He never gave up. He kept going. And he's telling us the secret is not by digging down deep within ourselves, pulling up our bootstraps and trying harder. No, it's not what he's saying. He's telling us the secret is by trusting deeper the person of Christ. That's the secret of contentment. He, Christ, is the source of our strength because he is the source of our lives. He is the source of our lives. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to this verse. So helpful as we consider this. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, this is Paul writing again. Therefore, since we have been justified, that's declared innocent. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, by grace through faith, we have peace. That is contentment with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the strength to bring us into justification was achieved entirely by Christ. And so since the justification uh, that brought us peace came by Jesus, we should expect to always trust Jesus to find strength and peace. Always. We should always expect to find contentment in Christ alone. And that's exactly what Paul tells us the secret is. He can do all things because all things are controlled by him and for his glory. And he has chosen to reveal himself to us that we might know him and be strengthened in him. Paul gladly submitted himself to the good providence of his good Savior. And since he has, he has found contentment and he is able to do all things. So that is, he is able to be sufficient for all things because Christ the sufficient has become his sufficiency. I say this all the time in our premarital counseling. If you've been through our premarital counseling, we say this over and over and over and over and over and over again. Your spouse will not complete you. If you're getting married because you think you're going to find eternal joy by getting married, don't get married. Christ is the only one. He's the only thing that completes you. That can make you whole, to make you sufficient. Christ cannot fail. He's never failed us once. We trust Him. We trust Him. We've got to learn this secret, beloved, in a discontented world. We have to learn this secret. We have got to become so confident in the sufficiency of Christ That we say to every project, every responsibility, every circumstance, I cannot stand under this. I can't, but Christ can. We've got to learn to say that. He is in me. I am in Him. He is good. He is powerful. He is for me. And I'm gladly going to submit myself to His providential activity in this thing. And He is going to get me out. He, He is going to get me out of this because He got me out of hell. That's how I know this. He got me out of hell, so he can get me out of this. There's nothing in comparison to what he has already done for me. So I'm going to trust him to get me out of this. 
This is the secret. If He has done that for us, whatever this is in your life, whatever this is, it is nothing in comparison to what He has already done for us at the cross and in the resurrection. If in Christ I have been so strengthened to be changed by His glorious grace into a new creation, what then do I lack to get out of anything else? Nothing. Nothing. So good to be reminded of these things, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I find myself tired a lot these days. I find myself weary. And I don't mean by that just sort of physical exhaustion. I mean more spiritual, emotional weariness. I find myself that way much more these days than I have in the past. And I'm convinced that the reason for that is because I think, in my heart of hearts, I think that I can do all things through me who strengthens me. I think that's why a lot of my weariness exists. I really trust myself. I sometimes treat the gospel like a philosophical system that I try and kind of force myself to live inside. And I do that knowing that the gospel is not some philosophical system. The gospel is a person to love and to trust and to follow. See, I can prepare sermons. I can write articles. I can facilitate counseling sessions. And I can try to fix things in my own strength, in my own intellect. Try to say just the right thing. If I can say just the right thing, then I can fix this or that. Even in my own life. If I just read a book on this, then I'm going to be fixed this. Then I'll have peace. Then I'll have contentment. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. But when I do actually do what my brother exhorted me to do and embrace my weakness, trust Christ for strength, embrace my inabilities, embrace my failures, begin praying, I begin praying down the promises of God, that He may he promise for me, pray those things down, believe those things. It's amazing how quickly peace and rest come upon me. And I find strength to keep going. And you know what else happens when I do that? The people that I serve are strengthened more. Because I'm giving them Jesus. I'm not giving them Nathan. Nathan's weak. Jesus is strong. The reality is, friends, I don't have the strength to keep going like this. But here's the good news. Jesus does. He has the strength to give me and to give you for your life and for your ministry. He has the strength to give us as a people, as a congregation, to be light to this city, to this world. He has unending reserves. Go take a scoop out of the Atlantic Ocean. How much is missing? That's what God is like. We trust Him for strength, for contentment. And so here's how we begin to do this. We've already talked about what the school of contentment does, how we do it. But how do we, how do we even get enrolled into the school of contentment? What do we need to do before we show up for class? We have to start by repenting of our self-righteousness. Saying to God, forgive me God, I've trusted myself so much. 
I've leaned upon my own understanding so many times. Forgive me, God. And that's what you do. That's the second thing is you ask for forgiveness, that God would give you grace for repentance. And then thirdly, you receive the grace of forgiveness. That God forgives you and he loves you. So we ask for forgiveness. We repent of our own self-righteousness. We ask for forgiveness. He then uh, wonderfully gives us grace for forgiveness. And then guess what happens after we do that? Christ not only enrolls us in the school of contentment, He brings us there every day, and He's happy. He loves us. God loves His own. He loves His own. And you want to know how to know that? I ask my kids this question all the time. I ask people in my community all the time. How do you know God loves you? That answer is so simple. Because He sent His Son. I know, Romans 8.32, I know if He sent His Son, He'll spare nothing for me. So I know that He loves me. He sent His Son to live a sinless life, to die a sinner's death, to take the judgment for my sin on Himself in the cross, be buried, raised on the third day by repentance and sin. I trust Him and His record gets accounted to me. I'm counted clean. And why does He do this? What's the motive in there? He loved us. For God so what? Loved the world. He loved me. And so that grace for forgiveness, He then brings me into the school and He teaches me. He teaches you. He teaches us to be content. And oh, what a witness that would be to this city. A people of contentment. It is looking to Christ for strength. I don't know where all of you are at, but I've lived in D.C. now for over eight years. And I know... That D.C. is much like every other city on planet Earth. Many of you are tired. Many of you are scared. Many of you are discontent in some way, shape, or form. And the reason you're probably tired is because you've not learned Paul's secret to do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Some of you need to trust Christ for the first time. Understand that in the midst of your discontentment, you're realizing you can't do this. And you need to trust Christ for righteousness. You can come to church and read the Bible and do all the things that you think that none of it will earn you righteousness. The only way you can find righteousness is in Christ. That's what some of you need to do to find peace. You need to give your life to Christ and follow Him. And those of you that have trusted Him, you need to embrace your weakness. Embrace the King of kings and the Lord of lords and entrust Him to give you strength to do all things. Most notably, that you would be content, trusting, gladly trusting His good providence in your life and in our life as a church. So let's ask Him to help us do that. Let's pray. Father, we pray Your forgiveness.